Let's stay together in a quiet space for a moment and keep your eyes closed. All right, I want, I'm going to read uh, a famous passage you'll know uh, from Revelation. And while I'm reading this, um, I want you to use your imagination and uh, receive, this, receive this in a very personal way. So use your imagination to picture this. You're in your house, you're sitting down at your dining room table, your family's there, or a friend, someone who's really close with you. You're sitting at your dining room table, and you're just kind of quiet. enjoying the presence of the other person. And there's a knock on the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So now in your imagination, I invite you to stand up from the table and go, go to your front door and open the door, and there's Jesus standing at your door, asking if he can come in and eat with you. What's your response to that? You open the door, and there he is, the risen Messiah, the Lamb of God who's slain to take away the sins of the world, the one who is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. There he is, standing, knocking so gently on your door, asking if he can come in. What is your response? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. All right, you can open your eyes. Do you remember the story where uh, James and John um, have their mom come ask Jesus if they can sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus when he comes into his kingdom? So it's not hard to imagine this, but if you were one of the other disciples and you heard this, how would you feel? How, how would you feel if you heard James and John say, we want to sit at your right and left hand. What would that do to you personally if you were one of the other 12? You'd be mad, right? You'd be angry, frustrated. You'd be left out, feeling like they were arrogant. So um, who, who wrote the book of Revelation as far as wrote it down? John. What was his request at that point, that he would sit where? At the, at the right hand of Jesus and his kingdom. 
Now listen to what the Spirit of God says to John. To John, same John. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. If you are going to sit on the throne of God, like just think physically for a moment. Jesus has a resurrected body. If you're sitting with Jesus on the throne, positionally, like physically, where are you sitting? You're on his lap. You're sitting on his lap. So John, the same one who's sort of demanding that he would sit at the right hand of God, now in his older age, having walked through all sorts of things, he's an old man at this point, and he receives this promise from Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I'm going to sit down and eat with you. And if you conquer and overcome in me, not only will you sit at my right hand, you'll sit with me on my lap in my throne. I wanted to start with that this morning um, because today we're talking about the church, where we're headed in history. Where's the church headed? The church has a trajectory. The kingdom of God has a trajectory. And the main picture that the scriptures give us for the final destination of where the church is headed is a feast. Specifically, the feast of the bride of Christ, the church, and the groom. We are headed somewhere. We are not on an adventure with no purpose or no meaning. We have a destination that God has called us to. So I wanted to start with a personal reflection. Uh, How beautiful was it? And I, I hope that you did this in your imagination. How beautiful was it to see Jesus standing outside your door asking to come in and eat? How wonderful was that? I had a dream once that I was on a school bus at a picnic, and there was no one else on the bus, and I was just sitting on the bus, and this is my favorite dream I've ever had in my entire life. I was sitting on, on this school bus, and outside there was a party going on, and I was feeling really left out that I wasn't invited to this party. I was just stuck on this bus. And all of a sudden the doors opened, and Jesus walked up the steps of the bus. But it didn't look like, it, he was, in this dream, he was a friend of mine. He, he appeared as a friend of mine who I, ha- who I was having a really hard time with, relationally. And I was really struggling with this person. And, but it was, I knew the moment, it was Jesus. And, and he, it was Jesus, the, like the God of the Bible, like the Jesus we worship. And, and I just like, the fear of God filled me. But it was like the most special moment of any dream I've ever had as Jesus just walked down the aisle and he sat down next to me. And I was just like, quiet. Jesus stands at the door and invites himself like a gentleman. Like a gentleman, he knocks. And we have to open the door, and he'll come and feast with us. And the, the sitting down and eating with Jesus, this is the picture of where all of eternity is headed. We are headed to a feast. Look at your neighbor and say, you're on your way to a feast. You are on your way to a feast. So just a little bit of review. In this series, we're exploring some of the New Testament passages and ideas that define and shape our understanding of church with an eye towards wrestling through some questions. What is the church? Who makes up the church? 
Why does the church exist? So we've looked at four different ways that the word church is used in English. It's used to describe a building. You say we're going to church. The word church is used to describe programs. Are you going to church tonight? You know, to the prayer meeting or whatever program. We use it to describe the 501c3. And uh, we use it to talk about our spiritual community. And uh, just to review, the only way that the New Testament uses the word church is the last way, to talk about spiritual community. That comes uh, from two words in Greek. One is uh, kuriakos, meaning, which means belonging to the Lord. And the second is the Greek word ekklesia. And that means a gathering. And so together, those two words, which are translated into English as church, what they mean is the church is the gathering of people that belong to the Lord. Uh, N.T. Wright says the church is the single multi-ethnic, so the, the gathering of people that belong to the Lord is the single multi-ethnic family promised by the creator God to Abraham, brought into being through Israel's Messiah, Jesus, energized by God's spirit, and called to bring the transformative news of God's rescuing justice to the whole creation. Last week, we looked at this idea that the church is both in and beyond culture. And what we mean, what I meant by that is that the church is both universal and also local. So an incredible design element of the church is its God-given ability to be simultaneously universal and contextualized, local. There are foundational truths about the church that are true of her in any time, any place, any culture, and any context. And yet, at the same time, the Lord does not design every local church in the exact same way. Just like every person has universal truths about what it means to be a person, yet every single person is distinct and unique from any other person. It's the same for local churches. Just as individuals with the same family share a common name, similar features, and even DNA, they also individually and uniquely are their own persons. That leads us to the topic this morning. Where are we headed in history? And I'm going to start uh, this week with the universal question of the church. The universal church. Across the earth, where is the universal church headed in history? And then next week, as I wrap up this series, I'll be talking about where are we headed at Parker Ford. So this week, where are we headed as a church, to be part of the church in the world? And next week, where are we headed um, here at Parker Ford? So in the Christian faith, we believe that all of history is building towards a specific, redemptive destination. We are on a journey, a journey with a purpose. The story of history will culminate in the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. This is the end of the story, as far as we know it at this point. The deepest revelation of the future that we have is God saying, Behold, I make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. The picture of this, the picture that God has given us to represent what it means to be a part of his new heavens and new earth, is the picture of the wedding feast between Christ and his bride. And so in a little bit, we're going to look at uh, Revelation 19, where it talks about the feast between the bride and the groom. So this morning, and this is another picture we've been talking about uh, repeatedly throughout this series, is five of the big pictures for the church are body, bride, temple, flock, and family. This morning, we're going to be focusing on the bride, because uh, the Spirit of God in the Scriptures ties the destination of the church specifically to this image, that we are the bride of Christ. 
All right, so if you think, many of you might be familiar with this idea. Have you seen this before? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Or creation, fall, redemption, uh, re uh, recreation. There's different ways that theologians and scholars and pastors word this. I like the word consummation because we're talking about a marriage. Um, and we're talking about the bride and the groom. So this is the basic, really an overly basic view of redemptive history. But it's helpful. So in the beginning, what do we know that God did in the beginning? In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. God's creation was good. Nothing about it was not good. It was exactly as it was supposed to be, exactly as he designed it. Now, there are still elements of the goodness, many of the elements of the goodness of God's creation that still trickle down to us today. When, when, uh, when Izzy stood in front of us, this, this young woman this morning, this image bearer of God, and we looked at her and saw her, was that not good? Was that not the goodness of God's creation right there. Or, um, I don't know, maybe this isn't good, but when you, when you stole that Snickers from your kid's uh, basket this week, was that not good? <laughs> it was a taste of, of goodness. No, but, but feasting. Who, who here has had a meal? Um, just think of the best meal you've ever had. Was that not a glimpse of the goodness of God? Yeah. When I eat a mango, a yellow mango, a fresh yellow mango, a Filipino fresh, none of this stuff here, a real mango, I taste and I see that God is good. So God's good goodness in creation, we still experience it, but it's been marred and it's been broken because we know that the end of the story is not just that God made all things good. We know that there was disobedience that led to sin, death, and the grave, and the fall. So the fall has affected every aspect of the good creation. So when you eat a Snickers, <laughs> as good as that thing might taste, there's, there's some fallout from that, right? There's some unhealth. Uh, even in that. And we know Izzy, with all the goodness of God, now she's also going to wrestle with sin. She's also going to face death. And she's going to make mistakes, just like me, just like you. And so even the most, the, the most beautiful, the most profoundly good thing in God's creation was his creation of his image bearers. You. You are the crown of creation. You are the most profound picture of the goodness of God. Because he put his image in you in a way that nothing else in creation has the image of God. But the fall has affected <laughs> and deeply marred us. Because of that, what the fall has, has most done, <laughs> most profoundly done, is, is it separated us from relational wholeness and connection with God. Because of the fall, because of sin, we are not able to walk in communion with God, walk in the cool of the garden as we were designed. This has been, um, many, many theologians have, have um, talked about this over church history, but there's a long tradition of looking at the garden and then seeing the design of the temple in the garden. 
So in the garden um, is the, the garden where Adam and Eve lived with the animals and walked with God. It's the first picture in the scriptures of the temple, um, of what it means for the manifest presence of God to meet earth at a, at a specific point and to experience communion with God face to face, voice to voice. And so um, one of the things, what happens in the fall, where are they kicked out of? They're kicked out of the garden. They no longer walk with him in the cool of the evening. They lo- no longer experience uh, feasting on the tree of life and, and the other uh, f- uh, tree, uh, fruit-bearing trees in the garden. And so the fall mars that and uh, causes relational and spiritual separation from God. And so uh, God redeems. And how does he redeem? How does God redeem? Through us working really hard? Through his blood, through his son. Through the life, the incarnation, the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. The good news, the gospel, the shedding of the perfect lamb of God. Through the shedding of God's blood, we receive redemption. So Jesus, the Messiah and hope of the world, has provided salvation, grace, and relational restoration through the cross. And this is the point in history where we live in. Already creation has happened. Already the fall has happened. Already the means of redemption and relational uh, reconciliation with God have been made available. And we today are here presumably because we have tasted and seen the goodness and salvation of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Or we're longing for it. That's why we're here. But we also continue to experience the fall. (laughs) even after the redemption, because he has not yet come again and redeemed all of creation. He has not yet come again and made all things new. And so we are in this in-between space where we have already experienced forgiveness and reconciliation because of the cross, but we have not yet seen and experienced the fullness of recreation, of new creation, of the coming kingdom. And this is where the church fits in. The church is the bridge between the redemption of Christ and God making all things new. So, the consummation, God will make all things new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and all will be made well and put right. Do you long for that day? God, come and make all things new. A day is coming, you've promised in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Lord, where there will be no more tears. (laughs) There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. It's hard for us to even fathom that that's possible. How is that possible? Things are so broke. We cannot fathom in our minds a world without sin and death. We can't even imagine that. And yet, you promise holds that you will make all things new and put everything to right. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. So I mentioned this in the first sermon in this series, that the church is a means to an end. And I know a couple of you had a question about what what is that? What does that mean? This is where the rubber meets the road for this. All right. The church is the means to an end. It's not the end. In other words, God didn't create the church for the end goal of building the church. God created the church for the end goal of establishing, continuing to establish his kingdom. So on a deeper, fuller level, 
more than uh, citizens of the church, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven um, in an eternal sense. So the church is the means to an end. The end is the consummation of the kingdom, the exaltation of Jesus, and the full glorification of the Father, 1 Corinthians 15 when all things will be put in submission to the feet of Jesus, and then Jesus will take all of those things, as if in a giant box, and give them to the Father, including himself, Paul says, so that the Father might be all in all. This is the end of all things. The church is the means by which the kingdom of God experiences growth and forward movement in the current age. In other words... The church is the expression of the kingdom today. From the time of Jesus' ascension and the giving of the Spirit of God at Pentecost to the return of Christ and God making all things new again, the church is the expression of the kingdom of God on earth. But before the church was initiated, was there already a kingdom of God? Yes. Before the church was ever birthed, there already existed a kingdom of God. Does the kingdom of God exist today? Yes. When the church is fully wed to Christ in the new creation and the kingdom of God has fully come, will the kingdom continue on into the future? Yes. And so we see the kingdom past, present, and future, whereas the church is a current manifestation of the kingdom. Does that make sense? So in that sense... The church is the means to the end by which the kingdom of God is being built. However, you can't separate the church from the kingdom because the church is the expression of the kingdom today. So uh, this little chart, I tried to map it out a little bit. So this is where we exist. We, we already exist in the portion of history where there is redemption through Jesus Christ. We don't yet live. Whoops. I got really excited there. Can you take me back to that uh, page, Wes? Thank you. Everybody give a hand to Wes. And nice job, Wes. Thank you for saving our helpless pastor. All right. We already exist in redemption through Jesus Christ. We do not yet exist in the time of the consummation where the, the bride will fully be wed to the groom. We exist in this in-between space. This space where the redemption of God is being brought to all of the earth. The gospel is being preached to every tribe, nation, and tongue. There's still over a thousand unreached ethnic groups. Over a thousand unreached people groups on earth. The, and, and how that's defined, a people group would be a, a language. So when Jesus said, go to all the nations, the word there is ethnos, which means language group. So when Jesus said, go to all the nations, he wasn't talking about the geography of the map you look at, the modern map, like with modern borders. He was saying, go to every single language group on earth. And there are over a thousand unreached language groups on earth. This is why we support Harold and, Ro uh, Harold and Joni Rosabal, uh, the Filipino missionaries to the unreached people group uh, the Khalid in the Philippines. Less than 1% of the Khalid people, Muslim people group in the Philippines, know Jesus, know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is why we support them, because we want to be a part of the gospel going to the unreached people groups of the earth. All right, so we already here, not yet here. The church is the means by which Jesus continues to spread this message 
to all the earth that this might be consummated. And all of this from beginning before the creation, through all of creation, fall, redemption, through the story of Abraham, through the kingdom of Israel, into the church age, and on into the future, all of it is the kingdom. This is why the church is the means to an end. All right. Does that make sense? Okay. So creation, fall, redemption, consummation. This leads us to our passage, Revelation 19. I want to pray and ask the Lord to speak through his word. Father, as we uh, jump into the text here, and we're going to look at the picture of the bride and her groom, we invite you, God, to speak to us through your word, that you might be glorified and that we might be formed into the image of your son. Your word is alive and active. Your, lo- your word has authority for the building up of the church and the building up of our families and the building up of our individual lives. Your word is authoritative. <laughs> it is the means by which uh, we receive the story, uh, comes through the word, the story of Jesus, the proclaiming of it. We thank you for your word, God, and we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, our spirits and our minds to receiving your word this morning. This is historically a very difficult uh, book to engage. It's so confusing. And there's so many theories about what Revelation is talking about. Father, we pray that you would make clear this morning that what this passage is talking about is your bride and Jesus feasting together in eternity as you make all things right through the blood of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. This is Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, this is John, the apostle. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of of his servants. For every good and perfect thing in creation, uh, there is a counterfeit. And the church is the bride of Christ, and the enemy has a counterfeit. And that's the prostitute, the counterfeit. And she often will disguise herself to look like the bride. But she is not. She's there to deceive people. You know the two women in the book of wisdom, uh, of uh, Proverbs? There's the two women, there's, there's Lady Wisdom, and what's the other lady? Remember? Lady Folly. And what does Lady Folly cry out? She says, young man, walking through the streets, come into my house that I might seduce you. Come and drink of my wine. Come and eat of my fruit. Come and sleep with me. My husband is away, she says. He won't know. And then there's this turn. And it's, it's incredible poetry. There's this turn, and the, the, the writer says, does not wisdom cry out also? Because Lady Wisdom is also on a hill, and she also has a house, and she's also crying out to young men and young women, old and young, come and eat of my fruit and drink of my wine that you might have life. This imagery of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly, you can see it all the way from Genesis 
three traced throughout the scriptures into Revelation. These two women keep showing up over and over again. Eve is a picture of both. She's a picture of wisdom turned to folly, but invited into redemption of wisdom again. And then that picture just plays out over and over again. So God will have final victory over the, the prostitute, Lady Folly. Verse 3, once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. That's quite the image. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There's a whole bunch I want to say about this. I don't know how much time we have. I'll start with this. The prostitute, this is being juxtaposed with this bride, dressed in white. In the first century uh, Roman world, elite prostitutes would buy for themselves gowns, like beautiful, expensive, white gowns. And they would have like a competition with, with others in their trade to who could be the most elaborately, ornately, beautifully dressed in these white gowns. And they would seek to entice men to pay for their services based on this. Now here, John is saying, the prostitute has fallen. Here's the bride. She too is being dressed in white. But this is not a white that's paid for by money to earn love or to earn keep. This is a white that's a totally different type of garment. It says, the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. All right, this leads us to a very difficult truth but needs to be faced and recognized. The church is really dirty. The, <laughs> all of us, every single one of us in this room, including you, including me, we have all been hurt by the church. And there are many times where she appears anything but beautiful. You can gossip about somebody <laughs> in the church. When affairs take place in the church, when money is stolen in the church, when there's abuse of power and young people are abused in the church, is that beautiful? Is that fine linen? So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? was granted to her to clothe herself. 
that reminds me of Jeremiah when he says, all of our righteous deeds are like what? Filthy rags. (laughs) Often when I think of the church, we are clothing ourselves in something. It doesn't seem to be this. So what do we do with that? And why was it granted to us, the church, not just Parker Floor, I mean the universal church, the church throughout all of history, to clothe herself? How is that even possible? How, How is God working in this mess. If you know your church history, you know that there have been some pretty dark periods in church history. There have been some pretty bad and ugly times. And yet, in all of our brokenness and fallenness, in all of our sin and shame and uncleanliness, unfaithfulness, and yet, God continues to do a work in the church and continues to work in his bride in such a way that she's being granted the ability to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the feast. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Do we earn God's love through righteous deeds? Of course not. Can you earn God's love through righteous deeds? What then are righteous deeds? They're the overflow, right? You are already loved. You are already redeemed. And how does a love and redeemed person act? Yeah, with thanks and righteousness. So think about this in Galatians when Paul says um, to clothe yourselves. Think about this imagery. It's been granted to the church to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Colossians, I'm sorry. In Colossians, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. He goes on to say, put away all the old stuff, sexual immorality, impurity, passion. Verse 12, put on then. Other translations say, be dressed in. Put on then, as since you are already God's chosen ones. You're not earning this. It's already given to you in Christ. Put on then, because you are his holy ones, because you are his bride. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. One of the most profound ways that the church is being dressed in the righteousness of God, that it's been granted to us to dress ourselves in righteousness is through the act of forgiveness. Through the act of forgiveness. What did Jesus say to his disciples? Whatever you forgive on earth will be forgiven in heaven. (laughs) 
Whoever you don't forgive will not be forgiven. And here it says, forgive as you've been forgiven. This is a righteous deed. (laughs) And this is one of the most profound ways that the church can experience being dressed in the fine linen, the clothing of God, is to receive and then to give the forgiveness of God. This does not mean that people who abuse others should not be held to account. They should. It's not what I'm talking about. But I'm saying we are a people of forgiveness. We are dressing, we are being dressed in white through forgiveness, as well as love and and serving the poor and all of these things. All right, I'm going to skip ahead to Ephesians 5. Did uh, I'm, I'm going to address this. This might be a little controversial, but that's okay. I have a little girl. I have a daughter. Uh, did any of you see the, the uh, well-known Bible teacher uh, who uh, recently um, was asked what he felt about Beth Moore? Uh, the, and he, what did he say to her? Uh, he, he said, go home. <laughs> go home. Um, so this has been making the rounds all over Facebook and social media and all of this stuff. This is never what Paul or Jesus would ever say. <laughs> Luke has a whole passage about the women who traveled with Jesus. Everywhere, as he was serving in his ministry, and he traveled with him. All right, so Ephesians 5 is, by modern readers, is often seen as this authoritative, domineering um, passage towards women. It can be read in that light by modern eyes. Um, I would like to offer you a different perspective, wherein uh, Paul is heightening the value and beauty of the bride and calling the men who are in power uh, in his sphere of influence to reckon with that, to see it, and to honor women. So there were these famous things called household codes in Rome. And what a household code was is different authors would write a code that would say, this is how you are to behave. Um, Household owners are at the top of a pyramid. Underneath them are firstborn sons. Firstborn sons and other sons exist to serve the father. Underneath sons are wives. Wives exist to serve the sons and to serve the father. Underneath that are other children, daughters. Daughters exist to serve the mothers who serve the sons who serve the fathers. Underneath that are servants. And this whole thing is made so that the man who stands at the top of the household would be served uh, by all those beneath him. This is a common thing in the first century world to have a household code. Now Paul is going to write a household code. And yes, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Yes, he says that. But he's going to reorient the whole thing. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine. I'm going to go on. Giving thanks always to God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another. So before he gets into the code, it's submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Then he says, husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? 
he died. <laughs> so yes, there is mutual submission wherein wives, honor your husbands. Listen. Listen and honor husbands. Die for your wives. Just as Christ put himself on the cross. Put yourself Bear the cross that God has for you in love for your wife. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. In Revelation 19, what did it say? The church has been granted the ability to dress herself in white, right? It's been granted to her the ability. What does Paul add to this? He says, yeah, but it's not just your good deeds <laughs> that are dressing you in white because who's actually dressing us in white for the feast? Look, that he might sanctify, this is Christ, might sanctify his bride, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to whom? He's presenting us back to himself in what? Splendor. In Splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So yes, while it has been granted to us the ability to forgive one another and love one another and contribute and participate in this work, it is Jesus that is dressing his church. It is Jesus who is making her splendid. It is Jesus alone who has the ability to take his bride and put all of this mess and clean it up and put it to right. <laughs> and he is doing that. And we get to participate in it today. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. So Paul's saying, I'm talking about husbands and wives. But what I'm actually talking about, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So when I'm talking about husbands and wives, I'm trying to get to something deeper. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he takes the household code of the Romans, and just like he did with um, <laughs> Philemon and the institution of slavery, in many ways he sticks a stick of dynamite under it. And says, <laughs> blows the whole thing up and says, no, everyone submits to everyone. This is mutual submission and husbands sacrificially loving. Yes, there's a difference, I believe. Um, I'm not going to go there. But yes, uh, this, is, this is an incredibly glorious, loving picture of the family. And so let's not be too quick to read our modern uh, eyes into this, but let us see it for its love and its grace. All right, um, all of this is building towards this picture of us feasting with God. This is where the church is headed. We are the bride of Christ, and he is addressing us, preparing us that we might feast with him. So blessed are those, it says in this verse, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Are you invited? Yeah! Yeah! Blessed are you. You are blessed. You, this is such a glorious verse. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride is invited to her own ceremony. Is she not? All right, I, I conducted, I officiated a wedding ceremony last Sunday uh, afternoon, uh, Garrett and Rachel Kaisers, and um, I was thinking about this all week. 
How bizarre would it be if Rachel was not invited to her own uh, ceremony? It would just be the most bizarre thing, right? It would be terrible. Everyone would be upset. The bride, of course, is invited to her own wedding ceremony. It was funny. I was listening to a sermon on this passage by a, a Presbyterian pastor named Steve Brown, um, and he was talking about this passage, and he was saying, he's an older gentleman, and he's saying, you know, I've done hundreds of weddings in my life, and from time to time, the groom is really nervous before the ceremony, like, especially a young, if they're a young couple, the groom's, like, real nervous, and I'll see him shaking, and he's like, I always say to the groom, you got nothing to worry about because there's not a single person here that's here for you. <laughs> you could faint, you could hit the floor, and nobody cares. <laughs> they're here for the bride. That's pretty true. In, in, in the end of all things, though, it's actually the opposite. Everyone is there for the groom. Everyone is there for Jesus. So if you are in Christ, you are a member of the bride. If you are a member of the bride, you are at the feast table. You're there. Revelation 2, or 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That was written to believers. <laughs> that was written to you and I. The church advances the kingdom of God. It's a means to an end. It advances the kingdom of God by growing the size of the feast table. Do, do you have a dining room table that can expand yeah. with weaves? No? You know those tables that can pull out? God's got a really big table. And it just keeps expanding and expanding. And he's got a whole bunch of leaves. And every time you bring someone else into the bride, the spirit of God does that through, through us, through his ministry, through his gospel, there's another leaf added to the table. His table has a whole bunch of extra leaves and it keeps on expanding. Invite others to join the feast. Invite others. So worship team, I want you to come back up. Praise team, we're going to end in singing. As they're coming up, um, I want you to identify someone who God might have you invite to the feast. So close your eyes and just say, Lord, who do you want me to invite to the feast? And just pray for that person. Pray that they would know Jesus. One of my uh, father, just um, in prayer um, here, I, I just want to thank you. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to officiate a wedding. That's just like, I've never had a bad experience. It's just always so fun. And I, I was sitting at the, the Kaiser wedding, um, and, you know, I only knew a handful of people there. Obviously, I knew the bride and groom. I knew the Kaisers. I knew the Grofs. And then the vast majority of this room uh, of people are strange, complete strangers to me. And yet, I'm sitting in this place of honor <laughs> with the Kaiser family, and I'm eating this delicious food, and I'm looking around, I'm watching people dance and laugh and talk, and it just struck me. Like, I have done nothing <laughs> to earn being in this spot, like invited into this intimate celebration. I've done nothing other than, other than positionally, Pastor here, Parker Ford, what a picture of eternity. <laughs> what a picture of eternity for us. As we're sitting around the feast of the groom and the bride, 
all of us are going to have that experience where we're looking around and we're seeing the dancing, we're hearing the, <laughs> and there's Peter, and there's David, and, and there's Moses, and there's <laughs> Mary, and uh, Martha, and, and uh, you know, all these amazing, incredible stories and saints, Joshua, they're, they're sitting at this table, and we're going to be sitting there <laughs> every bit as much intimate, feasting in your goodness as them, and the experience is just going to be, who am I that you are mindful of me? Who am I that I have an invitation to this place? And yet your love just pours out, and you invite us in to the feast. We're so unworthy. You are so worthy, and yet you invite us into the feast. And this is where the church is headed. The church is headed to the feast. So God, I pray that Parker Ford Church would be a part of stirring a hunger for the ultimate feast, <laughs> stirring hunger in our community, stirring hunger in one another to feast with Jesus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to listen to this well-known story in light of Revelation 19, Ephesians 5, this morning's teaching. It's from John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus had a different wedding (laughs) where the fullness of who he is would come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Father, it's a trick. It's a human trick to serve the good wine first because you want to cause you know, people to be in a stupor. (laughs) And when they're numbed, then you serve them the cheaper stuff that you can actually afford. Our God has served to us the richest of wines, (laughs) first, middle, and last of all, through his son. And when we arrive at eternity's shore, death is just a memory and sins no more. And we are gathered at that wedding feast. We will feast and drink in the presence of the Lamb on his goodness, on his blood poured out for us, on his body, on the water of life that bubbles up within us through him. We will feast and we will drink on the goodness of God. (laughs) And it will be the church at rest in the kingdom. And we thank you for that. We bless you, God, and we pray and sing in your name. Amen.